everyone, and welcome to the October 30th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fols, an attorney of the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our top stories. A WCAB panel concluded that a subsequent injuries fund benefit application filed 19 years after a date of injury may not have been filed too late. In this case, Andrew Glover filed an application for subsequent uh, injuries fund benefits on August 19, 2019. He alleged a date of injury back on September 2, 2001 as a professional athlete while working for the Oakland Raiders and the New Orleans Saints. The underlying case for regular benefits had been resolved by a compromise and release back in 2008. Mr. Glover therefore filed his application for subsequent injury benefits 11 years after his compromise and release and 19 years after his original uh, date of injury. The matter came on to trial and the issue of the statute of limitations and the work comp judge found that the subsequent injury case was filed too late since his date of knowledge for purposes of benefit trust fund eligibility was no later than when the compromise and release was approved. But Glover's petition for reconsideration was granted in the panel decision of Glover versus New Orleans Saints. The panel reviewed four Supreme Court cases that provide guidance on the issue of timeliness of a subsequent injury benefit trust fund claim. And the seminal case on this issue provided that if applicant knew or could reasonably be deemed to know that there will be a substantial likelihood of entitlement to subsequent injury benefits before the expiration of five years from the date of injury, then the limitation period to file a subsequent injury benefit trust fund claim is five years from the date of injury. However, if the applicant did not know and could not reasonably be named to know that there will be a substantial likelihood of entitlement to these benefits before the expiration of five years from the date of injury, then the limitation period to file a subsequent injury benefit trust fund claim is a reasonable time after he learns that the benefit trust fund has probable liability. So the WCAB panel agreed with the work comp judge that it was the second prong of this analysis that applies. But the panel disagreed with the work comp judge and said that the compromise and release was not a finding on the issue of permanent disability because paragraph 9 of the Compromise and Release Agreement form specifically states that a serious dispute existed as to the issues. Lastly, the WCAB noted that the Work Comp judge failed to discuss applicants' knowledge of the subsequent injury benefit trust fund's probable liability because there was no discussion by the judge of how applicant met the subsequent injury benefit trust fund eligibility thresholds found in Labor Code 4751. Accordingly, the panel granted reconsideration, rescinded its findings and order, and returned this matter to the trial level for further proceedings on the issue of timeliness of Mr. Glover's subsequent injury benefit trust fund application. And in an employment law case, the Court of Appeal concluded that an attorney's incivility during trial justified 
the trial court reduction in fees the attorney was awarded. In this case, plaintiff Steve Snoke sued Extra Time Innovations Incorporated for six claims, five of them under FIHA, and one claim for wrongful termination and violation of public policy. After a trial, a jury returned a verdict in Snoke's favor on his claim for failure to engage in a good-faith interactive process and found in favor of extra time on Snoke's five other claims and awarded him a total of $130,000. Snoke then filed a motion for attorney fees as the prevailing plaintiff on the FIHA claim and asked for the Lodestar amount plus a 1.75 multiplier for a total of nearly $2.1 million in attorney fees. After several additions and reductions to the requested fee, the court applied a 0.4 negative multiplier to its $1,144,000 adjusted Lodestar calculation. This was to account for counsel's lack of civility throughout the entire course of the litigation. His attorney, Perry Smith, was ultimately awarded only $687,000 in net attorney fees. So, Mr. Snack appealed the reduction in fees for incivility of his attorney. However, the Court of Appeal affirmed the trial court's reduction of fees in the published case of Snack versus Extra Time Innovations. Snack contends the nearly $487,000 reduction in attorney fees based on his counsel Perry Smith's incivility must be reversed because the fee reduction was not associated with any costs and because the court impermissibly applied it to punish Smith and had no legal authority to shift attorney fees to the defendant as a sanction. So the Court of Appeal reviewed a number of examples of the behavior observed by the trial judge. For example, it noted that Smith's incivility was not only directed to opposing counsel, it was also directed to the court. When his tone of voice, which was not reflected in the court reporter's record, was both belittling and antagonistic, and at times it verged on the contemptuous. Citing case law, the Court of Appeal noted the absence of civility heightens stress and debases the legal profession and reminded Mr. Smith that the California Rules of Court requires the attorney oath to conclude with, as an officer of the court, I will strive to conduct myself at all times with dignity, courtesy, and integrity. Thus, the Court of Appeal concluded Substantial evidence supported the trial court's finding that Smith was uncivil towards opposing counsel and the court, and that his ad hominem attacks were unnecessary for the zealous representation of his client. In order to calculate an attorney fee under the FIHA, courts generally use the well-established lodestar method, which is the product of the number of hours spent on the case times an applicable hourly rate. The trial court then has the discretion to increase or reduce the lodestar figure by applying a positive or negative multiplier based on a variety of factors. 
Those factors include the novelty and difficulty of the issues presented, the skill demonstrated in litigating them, and the contingent nature of the fee award. And in some published court opinions, the trial court limited prevailing party attorneys' fees in part due to counsel's over-litigating of the matter and lack of civility. The Court of Appeal in this case thus agreed that a trial court may consider an attorney's fees pervasive incivility in determining the reasonableness of the requested fee, and that the record amply supports the trial court's finding that plaintiff's counsel was repeatedly and apparently intentionally uncivil to defense counsel and to the court throughout the litigation. Thus it found no abuse of discretion and affirmed the trial court. And in another employment law appellate decision, the investigation of employee complaints was found to be protected by California's anti-SLAPP law. In this case, Dr. Natalie Operstein was employed as a professor of linguistics at California State University, Fullerton. In the course of her employment, she experienced conflict with her colleagues in the linguistics department, for which she made various written complaints, which had escalated to human resources. The university then engaged a law firm, Safarth Shaw, to investigate her accusations against three of her colleagues, and attorney Colleen Reagan at Safarth had primary responsibility for this investigation. Reagan interviewed the three colleagues she accused of misconduct and another individual, but Dr. Operstein herself agreed only to respond to written questions. Reagan's investigation and findings concluded that none of Dr. Operstein's allegations was well-founded and that much of Dr. Operstein's conduct and email communication was the opposite of collegial. Dr. Operstein regularly accused her co-workers of violations and infractions of policy and of defaming her and violating her rights, all with no apparent basis. Operstein's relationship with the university further soured shortly after Safarth completed this report. So she then filed a number of lawsuits related to her complaints, including one lawsuit underlying this appeal. In this complaint, it was solely against Safarth and Attorney Reagan, and the plaintiffs asserted 11 causes of action based on Safarth's work for the university about Oberstein's internal complaints of workplace harassment and related mistreatment. The defendants in this case responded with a motion to strike plaintiff's complaint under the California Anti-SLAPP Statute. That stands for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. And they supported their motion with declarations and extensive documentary evidence. These plaintiffs opposed the motion and submitted declarations and evidence of their own totaling nearly 3,000 pages. On the same day plaintiffs filed their surreply, the trial court issued a tentative ruling and was inclined to strike three of the 11 causes of action, but was inclined to request further briefing as to whether defendants' alleged investigative conduct was protected under the anti-SLAPP statute. Later on the same day, the trial court issued its tentative ruling, 
These plaintiffs voluntarily requested dismissal of their entire lawsuit, which the court then granted. Shortly thereafter, the defendants filed their motion for attorney fees and costs of nearly $80,000, and the trial court granted fees because the defendant would have only partially prevailed on the special motion to strike. It awarded the defendants only about uh, $64,000, which is 80% of the fees they requested. Plaintiffs Craig Ross and Natalie Oberstein appealed the fee award against them on three general theories, and the defendants cross-appealed and argued the trial court should have awarded all of the fees they requested, not just a portion of the fees. The Court of Appeal then agreed with the defendants that their motion to strike was wholly meritorious and their fee request therefore should not have been reduced on the grounds that they would have prevailed only partially on their motion. And it disagreed with the plaintiffs that the trial court erred in the ways they claim. This was in the published case of Ross versus Saifoth Shaw, LLP. The court went on to say the anti-slap statute provides a procedure for courts to dismiss at an early stage non-meritorious litigation meant to chill the valid exercise of the constitutional rights of freedom of speech and petition in connection with a public issue. Courts must broadly construe the anti-slap statute to further the legislative goals of encouraging participation in matters of public significance and discouraging abuse of the judicial process. A prevailing defendant on a special motion to strike is entitled to recover that defendant's attorney fees and costs, and the purpose of this provision is to provide the slap defendant financial relief from the plaintiff's meritless lawsuit. Then, when plaintiffs dismiss his or her complaint while the defendant's special motion to strike is pending, courts agree they retain jurisdiction to award fees and costs because permitting an 11th hour dismissal to eliminate financial liability would undermine the deterrent purpose of the anti-slap statute. And now our crime report. 49-year-old Aaron Lee McCarroll, who lives in Laguna Beach, was arraigned on 27 felony counts after a California Department of Insurance investigation found that she allegedly stole more than $62,000 in insurance premiums from at least 10 California business owners. An investigation began after the department received multiple consumer complaints that McCarroll allegedly accepted premium payments and then pocketed the funds and did not place the insurance coverage they believed they had. Her victims were contractors and other small business owners who are required to have workers' comp coverage for their employees and also requested and paid McCarroll for general liability policies also, which she did not place. McCarroll was allegedly able to deceive her victims by creating and issuing fraudulent Certificates of Insurance. 72-year-old Carmen Hall Ceruco and her husband, 77-year-old Antonio Ceruco, who both live in Novato, were sentenced last year 
after pleading guilty to multiple felony counts of workers' compensation fraud, and they were sentenced to two years of probation, 20 days in jail, and over $925,000 in restitution to the state fund and the EDD. Hall and Ceruco failed to report employees and payroll to the state fund, leading to a premium loss of about $586,000, and to EDD, which resulted in a payroll tax loss to them of about $343,000. Criminal law allows a convicted felon to ask that their charges be reduced to misdemeanors, and the court has the discretion to grant or deny the request based upon the underlying facts of the case. Based on that law, Saruko Hall appeared in court and contended that she had been compliant with the terms of her probation justifying reductions of the charges. However, as of September 5th, 2023, Hall Saruko and her husband Antonio Saruko had only paid $7,100 in restitution. So this October, a Superior Court judge denied Hal Suruko's uh, request to have her 2022 fraud-related conviction reduced from a felony to a misdemeanor and ruled that Hal Suruko's behavior did not amount to misdemeanor conduct. And this month, a Sacramento contractor, Marco Lukic, pled no contest to felony insurance fraud and tax evasion and was sentenced to serve 210 days in jail and was also ordered to pay $176,000 in restitution to the state compensation insurance fund and nearly $40,000 in restitution to the EDD. And Mr. Lukic is also liable for an additional $200,000 in penalties and interest to the EDD. This investigation, which was led by the California Department of Insurance and assisted by the state fund, determined that Lukic misrepresented the number of employees working for Lukic Construction, resulting in more than $170,000 in losses to the state fund in workers' compensation insurance policy premium and almost $40,000 in taxes to the EDD. And now our regulatory news. California Labor Code Section 510 requires overtime pay for work in excess of 8 hours in one workday and any work in excess of 40 hours in any work week. California Labor Code Section 515.5, however, provides that certain computer software employees are exempt from the overtime pay requirements if certain criteria are met. One of the criteria is that the employee's hourly rate of pay is not less than the statutorily specified rate, which the Department of Industrial Relations is responsible for adjusting on October 1st of each year to be effective on January 1st of the following year. This year, the DIR increased this threshold by an amount equal to the percentage increase in the California Consumer Price Index for urban wage earners and clerical workers. So the DIR has adjusted the computer software employee's minimum hourly rate of pay exemption from $53.80 to $55.58 an hour, 
and the minimum monthly salary exemption from $9,338.78 to $9,646.96. And then the minimum annual salary exemption from $112,065.20 to $115,763.35. And all of these thresholds are effective January 1st, 2024. This increase reflects the 3.3% increase in the California Consumer Price Index for urban wage earners and clerical workers. The National Labor Relations Board has issued a final rule rescinding and replacing the final rule that's called Joint Employer Status under the National Labor Relations Act, which last took effect back on April 27, 2022. This new rule establishes a new standard for determining whether two employers are joint employers of particular employees within the meaning of the Act. Under this new final rule, an entity may be considered a joint employer of another employer's employees if the two share or co-determine the employee's essential terms and conditions of employment. Joint employment issues typically arise when using professional employment organizations or in contractor-subcontractor situations, parent-subsidiary, and franchisor-franchise situations, and in other arrangements. The Act itself does not specifically address situations in which statutory employees are employed jointly by two or more statutory employers, but the National Labor Relations Board, with court approval, has long applied common law agency principles on employment status. However, under the Trump administration, a divided NLRB established a new joint employer standard that departed in significant respect from the prior common law standard and introduced control-based restrictions that narrowed the joint employer standard. Now, with the intent of reversing this 2020 standard created during the Trump-era law, the board issued a new final rule that takes effect on the end of this year. And in medical news, according to a new study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association that finds a traditional Chinese medical compound might help reduce the incidence of major adverse cardiac and cerebrovascular events and even cardiac death rates. This compound is known as Toxigenilu, has not previously been rigorously evaluated in large randomized clinical trials. So a group of, a group of researchers set out to investigate whether Toxigenilu could improve clinical outcomes in patients with ST segment elevation myocardial infarction. This is called STEMI. Toxigenilu in Chinese means to open, which is tongue, the network, luo, of the heart, xin. And the compound consists of a mixture of powders and extracts derived from plants, 
centipedes, cicadia, and other sources that has been approved in China for the treatment of angina and stroke since 1996. This randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trial was conducted, and it showed that in patients with STEMI, the Chinese patient medicine, toxinoglu, as an adjunctive therapy in addition to STEMI guideline-directed treatments, significantly improved both 30-day and one-year clinical outcomes. And this current study was consistent with smaller studies that essentially came to the same conclusion. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today, and then please drop by again next week for more news.